verses 21 to 33. We've looked at Genesis, the institution of marriage, and now we look at what marriage should look like today in light of Christ. So chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and cares for it, just as, the, as, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Well, let's now pray for Peter. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, the very words of God. Teach us as we must to be husbands and wives who honour the relationship you have established and who seek to model Christ and the church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And uh, thank you very much for your warm welcome, John. And it's a great pleasure and delight to be amongst you again once more. I guess it's very uh, appropriate today that we do address the subject of marriage providentially in the course of the morning sermons. I'm told that this is precisely where we've come to. And uh, the pastor is not here today. He's left this one to me. And... uh, It's appropriate, I think, because it's so much a matter of public discussion. So I'm glad, uh, in one sense, for the opportunity to uh, look with you this morning to see what Scripture has to say about this vital issue. As we do so, uh, I'm going to invite you, please, to turn with me uh, to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, you have said uh, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. And we pray today, our Father, that uh, you would help us to both understand, uh, appropriate and obey uh, this word that you have caused to be written for us. Uh, We thank you for the ministry of the Apostles uh, through whom you have spoken by the Holy Spirit. And we pray that we may sense uh, today that the Spirit is specifically addressing us just as 
those who originally received this letter sense the Spirit of God speaking to them. We pray that you bring about a conviction of sin in our lives and of the path of true righteousness and we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Now there is no doubt that uh, marriage is in a state of crisis uh, in our day. It's not a crisis that has suddenly unfolded upon us. Uh, Those of us who are old enough uh, will remember a certain time uh, just after 1972 uh, when the Federal Attorney General, Senator Lionel Murphy, introduced changes to the Family Law Bill. Uh, It was the first legislative act uh, to dismantle the notion of marriage which we had inherited as part of our Christian tradition over 2,000 years. Uh, It attempted to alter the notion of marriage by simply defining its termination point and shortening it. And that has had catastrophic effects in our society. But at the moment, uh, there is something far more radical and far more profound taking place because it's not simply defining uh, a new end point for marriage, it's changing the very identity of marriage itself. People today seem to be thoroughly confused about the very nature of marriage and particularly, therefore, how those who are parties to the marriage are meant to relate to one another. Whereas it's been assumed uh, for far more than 2,000 years that marriage is a relationship between husband and wife, uh, now it is being proposed that we redefine marriage to refer to a sense of emotional companionship or kinship with another person. And the sexual nature of that person is irrelevant. Now, whether people understand the seriousness of this crisis uh, is a debatable point, but one thing I'm sure is that the only way out of the present confusion is to rediscover the teaching that God has given us in the Scriptures so that we can ascribe uh, the importance to marriage that he himself does. I think the point that Paul is making here in Ephesians 5 is that the only way uh, that we we can find out of the pro- find our way out of the problems that face us in married and family life is for each of us to personally rediscover uh, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul makes it very clear in this passage. Uh, as you've been discovering in in recent weeks, uh, that the way to renewal in all our relationships must first begin through reconciliation to God uh, through Christ and then as he has revealed uh, in this 18th verse of uh, Ephesians 5, uh, we must be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, to receive reconciliation, we need to be united to God uh, through the work of Christ and it is the Holy Spirit who draws us to Christ and then indwells us so that we can live out the life of Christ in our own lives. And this is particularly the case in marriage. 
See, the problem as far as marriage is concerned is not lack of information. Uh, you can walk into any bookstore, Christian or otherwise, and you will find an abundance of material on the subject of relationships and particularly marriage. In fact, we're literally drowning in information on relationships. We've got marriage books, we've got marriage CDs, DVDs, marriage uh, encounters, uh, marriage conferences, marriage counsellors. We've got marriage information by the truckload. But Paul's point here in Ephesians 5 is that information by itself is not enough. Notice he's saying, unless you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you'll be unable to play an effective role in marriage because one of the most important manifestations of the Spirit's presence in your life is whether you can submit to other people in the fear of Christ. Listen to what he says in 5.21. Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ. The NIV actually turns it into an imperative. Uh, Submit to one another or be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, although the NIV translates it as a command, uh, the AV is actually the correct uh, translation because this word submit Uh, is best translated as submitting. It's a present participle. Uh, That is a verbal adjective describing a particular manifestation of the Spirit's presence in your life. If the Spirit is indwelling your life, you will have a submissive attitude towards other people or in other, other words, you will be able to subject yourselves to other people in the fear of Christ. It's important to remember that the submission uh, that Paul is referring to here is not civility. It is not weakness. Uh, It is not a sense of inferiority nor an attitude of docility. It does not mean that you are the kind of person who is easily pushed around or trodden on. Submission is something quite different. And we realise that the meaning of submission in the Bible at least is different when we understand that Jesus himself submitted himself uh, to the will of the Father. Within that eternal existence of personal relationships uh, in the Trinity, uh, we're told that Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. In other words, he chose quite voluntarily to forego certain privileges and entitlements that he had as the eternal Son of God to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been entrusted because of his relationship with the Father. Even though he was in every sense equal to the Father, He saw it as his role to submit to the Father. And the Apostle John tells us that he was not dishonoured in doing so because in the 12th chapter of John at the 28th verse uh, we read 
when Jesus submitted himself to the Father by dying for our sins, both Christ and the Father were glorified by his doing so. So I think we need to understand that when Paul calls upon Christians to submit, he is not calling upon them uh, to do this as a sign of weakness or powerlessness. It is a voluntary action, something that we choose to do. Now, not only did Jesus submit to the Father, but we're also told uh, that he submitted himself to the church. We see uh, the mutual nature of submission uh, between Christ and his church here in Ephesians 5. And if you turn with me, please, to uh, verses 31 and following. Uh, We're told, for this cause, which is a quotation from Genesis 2, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and the two shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, Paul says, but I speak concerning Christ and his church. Marriage, in other words, Paul is saying, points to Christ and his church. It is a divine mystery. Now, of course, men, oh, sorry, even, even in the modern world, uh, the vast majority of people have absolutely no idea that marriage is a mystery and that God designed natural things to point to spiritual realities. Isn't that the very thing that the woman of Samaria did not understand? As Jesus is talking to her about living water, she's thinking about water in this well at Sychar. And when Jesus tells the Jews, destroy this body and I will build it, or destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days, they think he's referring to the temple. And Jesus is reminding them that it is his resurrection body. The problem is uh, we're guilty of profaneness. Profaneness is looking at natural things and failing to see their spiritual significance. That's what profanity is. It's abusing God's good things by failing to see their true spiritual significance. And when we look at marriage, uh, we can be guilty of profanity if we do not look beyond the earthly institution itself to the divine reality to which it points, which is namely Christ and the Church. In all the public discussions that I'm hearing at the moment, I have not heard that one. It's rather odd, I think, you know, considering the fact that the Christian Church wants to participate in this debate, that we neglect to mention the primary reason why marriage is of such great significance. It points to the one everlasting relationship that we can have, that relationship that God will have with us as his people. 
So we've learned that mutual submission exists within the Godhead and it certainly exists between Christ and his people. Uh, So it's not surprising then that mutual submission is a fundamental ruling principle of marriage because marriage is a mystery that points beyond itself to the great reality of Christ's eternal union with his people. Now I wonder if you realise that mutual submission lies at the heart of marriage because Paul tells us in an introduction to a series of relationships which he's going to discuss uh, in verse 21 the principle is that if you are filled with the Holy Spirit being filled with the Spirit is a command the manifestation of being filled with the Spirit is that you submit yourself or submit yourselves to one another in the fear of God Paul is now going to discuss how this mutual submission operates in the relationship of marriage. And it's not just in Ephesians 5 that we discover this principle. Uh, Paul makes it clear when he writes to the Corinthians about some of the issues of marriage in 1 Corinthians 7 uh, that he, he makes it clear that mutual submission is uppermost in his mind. Uh, The key idea is in verse 3 of chapter 7. He says, Let the husband fulfil his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. Do you realise if you're a Christian you have a responsibility of mutual submission? I know why I like to talk about our rights today. Paul doesn't talk about rights. He talks about our responsibilities, our duties. The husband must fulfil his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. In other words, both partners are meant to submit to the other partner and fulfil their duty to them as an act of obedience to Christ. I wonder if you see the mutuality there. See, verse 4 continues, A wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. And likewise also, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but his wife does. Do you see what Paul's saying? There is mutuality in marriage. Each of the parties is responsible to care for and show concern for the other party. Men must do it for their wives, Wives must do it for their husbands. And this is as it should be because as I reminded you when we looked at verse 21, the distinctive life of a Christian, that is a person who is filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit, is that they practice mutual submission. It's characteristic of the life and interpersonal relationships within the Trinity and it is the defining feature of the relationship between Christ and his church. Now what does it mean to submit? Well as you may perhaps be aware uh, this particular word in the original language at least is made up of two Greek words a prefix, hupo and the main part of the word, uh, tasso. 
Uh, hupo means under and tasso means to line up or to get in order. And when you put both of those words together, it means to line up beneath or to get in order beneath. Now the interesting thing in 521, uh, which says submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, is that Paul is not simply teaching submission. He's teaching mutual submission. You know, we all think that submission applies to one of the parties in the marriage. But that's not what Paul says. Be subject to one another, to one another, in the fear of Christ. That's what it says. And so those who think that submission applies to just one of the parties in a marriage have misunderstood the text. Now note how submission works in this passage. It's stated as a principle in verse 21. That is, we must submit to one another. And then we read in verse 22, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord. Well, that's the way it reads in English. But you need to know that the translators have actually interpolated a word there. <laughs> they put an extra word in. You know what it is? It's the word submit. Now I find it interesting to note that the word submit does not appear in verse 22 in connection uh, with these words. It's only implied. That might surprise you. And you might be asking the question, why didn't Paul put the word submit in there as he's speaking to wives? Well, I think that it means that each member in the relationship of marriage or the family has an implied or a specific duty of submission to someone else. So he says in verse 21, Submitting yourselves one to the other in the fear of God, wives to your husbands as unto the Lord. And then a few verses later on, he'll begin with dealing or in dealing with the husbands and how they are meant to submit. And so I think what Paul's doing here is pointing out that everybody in this relationship, that is the husband as well as the wife, has a duty to practice mutual submission. For instance, in dealing with marriage, he reminds the husbands that they have the responsibility to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and that is how they submit to their wives. How did Christ love the church? Well, he gave himself up for her and surely there is no greater act of submission than voluntarily laying down your life for your partner. And husbands are called upon to deny themselves in the same way. You see, when a husband uh, submits to his wife, he, as it were, gets beside her or lies up next to her or gets underneath her to carry her burdens and to sacrifice himself for her well-being. Again, when we think of Paul's remarks in relationship to children, the way that children submit in the family is that they obey their parents. That's their peculiar form of submission. 
And when Paul addresses the parents, he calls upon them to submit to their children, not by obeying their children, but by nurturing them and training them to know Christ and by not provoking them to anger. In other words, every partner in the family or every member of the family and each partner in the marriage relationship has a duty of mutual submission to all the other parties. In other words, each of us is there to serve the others. That's the point. The point is we all need to submit. And that may seem quite novel to you, but it's actually what Paul is teaching. We all need to consider others' interests and to serve them. And Paul's saying that that's the only way in which a Christian marriage can work and it's the only way a Christian family can work. It's not about rights. See, that's the problem with feminism. It thinks the way out of the trouble of marriage is to insist on rights. And Paul's saying the way out of trouble in marriage is to seek reconciliation in Christ, be filled with the Holy Spirit and fulfil your responsibilities. We've got it all wrong. Therefore, wives must submit to their husbands. Husbands must submit to their wives. And if you don't see that, Paul is calling upon everyone to submit to others in the circle of relationships, then you've actually missed the point of Ephesians chapter 5. Now, the directions to Christian wives are fairly simple and cover just three verses. Verses 22 to 24. Wives, he says, submit unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Now, the first thing that I ought to point out is what I've already alluded to already, and that is that the word translated submit does not appear here in the text in verse 22, that is in the Greek text. The idea is implied from a command in verse 21, which instructs all believers to submit themselves to one another. And I think this reminds us that Paul is most definitely not singling out women and saying that women, as the party to the marriage, are the only ones with a duty of submission. That is not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying we've all got that duty. There is a sense in which all of us have to cloak ourselves in humility and serve one another. And so what Paul is doing here as he addresses women is to say that this is the distinctive way in which you submit in the marriage and in a few verses later I'll tell you how the men are most meant to submit. The other thing I think we should note here is that wives are not called upon to be submissive to other men. It's not as though uh, men form a ruling class over all women. A woman is only meant to submit to her own husband. The principal area of her submission uh, is to her husband and also to her children in a specific way. 
It's in the sphere of marriage and family where she serves and offers herself as a sacrifice for the welfare of others. And she does that not as a second class citizen. She does it as a spiritual equal to her husband and a joint heir with Christ. I think a further thing that we should note here is that Paul does not call upon wives to obey their husbands. You'll discover if you go down into chapter 6 that he tells children that they are meant to obey their parents but he doesn't say that of a wife in in, in relationship to her husband. He tells her to submit and I think what he has in mind is that a wife will willingly support her husband in his best intentions and endeavours but it's not an unqualified following or obedience of her husband. For example, a wife could counsel her husband if she believes that he's doing something wrong or something foolish or something that might endanger the family or bring dishonour upon it. She's instead meant to submit to him or serve him by being loyal to his best interests and doing everything she possibly can to support him. I think that's what Paul is saying. Now I mentioned a moment ago that to submit for a wife is not the same as obey. And if we confuse the two, we misunderstand, I think, what Paul has in mind. Uh, The word obey is different to the word submit. It comes from the Greek word hupakuo. And that is what Paul instructed children and slaves to do when he called upon them to practice submission. But he does not use that word of the wife. A wife is not a slave. A wife is not a child. She is a joint heir of eternal life along with her husband. She is his spiritual equal and she is most definitely not a slave. On the contrary, uh, marriage for a woman uh, is deep and intimate spiritual partnership in which she serves her husband and he serves her. And so her attitude to her husband is to align herself and devote her energies to doing all that is good for him. That's what Paul, I think, is saying here. She is to commit herself to doing whatever she can to advancing his lawful interests. She is equal to the man. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Uh, but she does recognise his leadership in the relationship. And when she submits to her husband, she submits to him because the Lord has decreed it, not because her husband demands it. Her submission is as unto the Lord. But, and this is important to note, her submission to her husband Uh, is not quite quite the same as her submission to the Lord. You see, while husband and wife are bond slaves of Christ, that doesn't mean that the wife is the bond slave of her husband. While the wife is called upon to give continual, entire and absolute submission to Christ, that's not quite the same sort of submission that she actually gives to her husband. 
What happens if a husband asks his wife to do something wrong or reckless? What happens, for instance, uh, if he asks her to lie on his behalf or engage in a crime with him? Is she supposed to follow his instructions unquestioningly? Is it possible to remain submissive to your husband and yet offer different and better advice? See, I think we all know the answer to that question. So what Paul is saying here is that a wife is in no way inferior to her husband and her submission is more of an attitude to her husband than simply a blind and fawning obedience. A wife is in every sense a husband's helper. And that's why wives are so valuable. If they give uh, wise and prudent and timely advice, sometimes as a husband, even in contradiction of your own views, uh, she's being submissive because she's giving you a better perspective on the situation. You know, men often have heard the term a man's look. <laughs> you know, it's when you're trying to find something. If you're giving it a man's look, you probably won't find it. If you give it a woman's look, you know, you usually find the keys or the wallet or whatever it is that you need. And women often have a better perspective on wider issues as well. And the last thing that any husband needs is an unthinking wife who doesn't look or can't see and doesn't offer the kind of advice that we need. A wife is definitely not called to be a doormat. Now this leads us of course to consider the role of husband in marriage. How does the husband uh, submit to his wife? Well the husband submits to his wife, we're told, uh, by loving her. Verses 25 and following. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. Uh, I think the important thing to remember here is that Paul gives this command to love your wife in the context of our personal obligation to submit to one another. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 5.21? Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. It's mutual submission. Paul is now calling upon us as men to practice submission to our wives and he is now suggesting to us the ways in which we ought to do it. And I want to emphasise this because uh, if, if we at any time forget that the controlling idea of this whole passage is mutual submission, uh, we'll move away from what Paul is intending us to understand. It's very easy to move away from it. Uh, People, especially males, tend to fixate on the notion that the husband is the head of the wife. And we draw all sorts of conclusions about that and very conveniently forget that Christ is the head of the church 
and he's Lord over the earth, uh, but he is a servant and he is a ruler. And every moment of this day, he is upholding all things by his powerful word. You know, he doesn't work on an eight-hour shift. Christ is working 24 hours a day, day and night, at the right hand of the Father, and he is always there serving his world and serving his people. Well, Paul's instructions here are far more nuanced uh, than we would probably understand, especially what Paul is saying here is that the way that a husband acts as the head of the relationship uh, is not actually by ordering his wife around but by loving her in a thoughtful, costly and caring way. We are meant to love our wives, that is the way in which we submit ourselves, we are meant to love our wives as Christ loved the church. This means that we put our wives' interests uh, before our own. Now, of course, as a sinful man, my tendency is to do the exact opposite. You don't have to be a non-Christian uh, to, to go off in that direction. Uh, Christians are just as prone. That's why Paul's giving us this command. He's reminding us uh, of our duty of mutual submission. And he's now reminding us of what true love looks like. Now, great danger as men is that as we read these, these words, the husband is the head of the wife and wives should submit to their husbands in everything as giving us carte blanche to order our wives around almost in an autocratic style. But we can't. Because Paul says, love your wife as Christ loved the church. And he gave up his life for the church. And all his waking moments were spent in being concerned for the church. All his labours of ministry were spent in the cause of the church. His final act of self-sacrifice was done for the sake of of the church. So the idea that a husband can act unilaterally and throw his weight around and dominate his wife is not to be found in this text. If you think that it can be, uh, then you haven't understood the controlling idea of mutual submission. It would be unthinkable for a husband you know, to make a decision affecting his wife and his family without consulting with his wife. I know some people will just decide to sell a house and go and sell it, not tell their wife. It should be unthinkable for a husband to do that. And many other things. Headship always leads to love. And so what Paul is saying here about a husband submitting to his wife is that he shows her tender love, costly care and puts her welfare before his own. He sacrifices himself for her, he serves her. And if Christ is the head of the church and our teacher and Lord and he washes his disciples' feet and gives up his life for them, then where do we ever get the idea in Christian circles 
that the husband is effectively a dictator. It's certainly not in this text. Headship leads to love. And notice that love is more than simply romantic feelings. It's more than an involuntary attraction. It's a choice of will. Christ gave himself to the church. He chose to die in order to protect and guard the purity of the church. Notice how love is expressed in a number of different words. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, uh, Love protects, love trusts, it bears all things, endures all things. It involves action, not just feeling. You know, we think we only love today if we have romantic feelings. When Paul's describing love, he's talking about love in action in 1 Corinthians 13 and that's why it endures. Notice in John 13, uh, the Apostle reminds us that having loved his own, he loved them to the end. There was no, as it were, limit to the love that he showed them. And there will come times in life where the limits are tested. One of the saddest situations I think that I've ever experienced was going into a Christian man's home uh, where his wife had lost her mind and she could no longer recognise him. And she answered the door and when I asked her whether her husband was in, she said, no, he's not there. He's gone away to northern New South Wales. In just a moment later I, I heard a voice from the bedroom. He said, no, I'm here. And when he came out, she said, oh, I don't know who he is. Can you imagine the grief involved in that relationship that went on for several years and yet he lovingly and tenderly cared for his wife? That's Christ-like love. That's the kind of love to which we're called. A love which knows no end and no boundary. A love that loves the weak, loves the faltering, loves the sick. A love that perseveres, a love that endures. And our calling as leaders in our homes, men, is to love our wives with that love. As we conclude, let me uh, finish where I began. As husbands and wives, uh, do we understand our need to be filled by the Holy Spirit? Do we understand that this leads us to a life of mutual submission where we care for one another and we sacrifice ourselves for one another so that the home in which we raise children will be a home which sees love, true love, true Christian love in action. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for the power of your word, a word that brought the world into being, a word that continues to sustain it, 
And we pray that that same word, uh, which is like a rock that break, which is like a hammer rather that breaks rock into pieces, uh, will break our stony hearts and reshape and reform them and hammer our lives into that perfect uh, likeness of Christ so that we might be truly transformed and controlled by your Holy Spirit. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.